Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for the McDonald Laurier Institute in Foreign Policy. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the program today Dr. Balkan Devlin, Associate Professor at the University of Copenhagen. Balkan, how are you? Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, show. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, you know, you've got such an extraordinary background on all kinds of issues with respect to Turkey, Russia, NATO, Iran. Uh, I'm just excited that this is hopefully the first of many collaborations that we have together. Uh, but I wanted to set the table with you to describe to our listeners the context of what we've been seeing happen between Turkey, Russia, and NATO before this moment. I mean, Turkey used to be a stalwart NATO ally. There was a time in which the European Union had long conversations with the Turkish government about joining the EU concept. They were seen as an ally of the West. But in the last couple of years, all that seems to have completely deteriorated with Erdogan turning to Putin and having apparently a more aligned relationship with Russia than, than with the West. Can you give us a sense as to what might be happening and how Turkey seems to be kind of slipping out of the Western alliance into something far more dubious? Uh, it is unfortunate in the sense that um, it has been a long tradition within the Turkish foreign policies after the Second World War and definitely after 1952 when, when Turkey joined NATO to be solidly within a Western camp, first against the, uh, the Soviet threat and then afterwards being an important ally in the region. What really started to change, I uh, I would argue, is that with the war in Syria, Turkish position, the Turkish uh, government position, end up being at odds with uh, the majority of the Western uh, opinion. Initially, at the initial stages of the Syrian war, government in, in Turkey uh, hoped that possible uh, regime change in the region, in Syria, would enable them to to develop even further uh, relations, particularly if Assad is gone, right. the hope, um, at least back in 2011, 2012, even up to 2015, I would say, was that a Muslim Brotherhood-aligned group that would come to power and that would have ideological affinities with the with the governing party in Turkey and that would provide further clout to Turkey. In that region, and for about you know from, from 2011, particularly from uh, 2012 up until late 2015, uh, the the primary goal ended up being uh, for Turkey for Syria was the removal of Assad. But that didn't work out that that particular way. And with the Russians getting involved in Syria, Turkey is forced to develop a modus vivendi with Russia, despite the fact that they are on the you know opposite sides of this conflict. It is further actually intensified after the uh, failed coup attempt in Turkey in July in 2016, in which a, a Glenist uh, group uh, within the army uh, tried to engage in, uh, in, a, in a military coup against the Erdogan government. Uh, and that uh, led the, the government, particularly Erdogan and others, um, to move towards the uh, Russia and, and Russian position, partly because uh, the the presence of of Fethullah Gulen in the U.S. and that led to all sorts of conspiracy theories that that the U.S. is somehow uh, backing this this particular attempt. But uh, there are also facts on the ground in the sense that after the Russian intervention in Syria, starting from fall of 2015, 
uh, it became almost impossible to operate without basically some level of coordination with Russians. And, and Turkish attention turned towards prevention of, of a creation of an independent or, or an autonomous Kurdish region uh, in northern Syria. And that required coming in terms with with Russia. And that, as in this sense, as, as Erdogan moves, slowly moves away from the West, he thought that you know he could be able to sort of balance that out with getting closer to to Russia. Although I would say that the long term interests are are very much uh, opposed for both countries. They're not really aligned, uh, neither in the Middle East, nor the Caucasus, nor nor the Black Sea or elsewhere. Uh, but in the short term, um, the the government seems to be thinking that it is a, a better shot to try to get close to Russia in order to. Sort of balance out, uh, balance out these different choices, different preferences regarding Syria. Right. So, you know, what a wonderful survey you've given us. Because on one side, you're describing how in Ankara, in Turkey, there's an interest to see a Muslim Brotherhood regime emerge in Assad, Syria, whereas the Russian Federation has been focusing on preserving Assad's control in Syria. You see the Turks being extremely concerned about the emergence of an autonomous Kurdish paramilitary zone in northern Syria. Meanwhile, the Russians have you know, supported Kurdish independence and are amongst the most pro-Kurdistan exactly. uh, voices in the world community. So when we're looking kind of more specifically at fissure points, uh, tell me what's happening in Idlib and what do we need to be concerned about when we look at how Turkey and Russia are wrestling with this upcoming operation in Idlib? It's. I think the operation is is basically about when, but not if. It has been quite clear, especially after the, the regime forces, of course, with the support of uh, of the Russian air force, took Aleppo, and basically sort of goaded the rest of the uh, opposition and mostly the jihadists of of various stripes um, into Idlib. That area will not necessarily be allowed to stay as such. It just it just doesn't make any sense in terms of strategic and or in, in, in any shape or form to allow a safe haven of a you know, bunch of different shades of jihadists congregating in, in such an area. So that would happen. That will be cleared out eventually. The idea is what is the cost, both in terms of human cost as well as for Turkey, the, the cost as in terms of refugees and the control in the region. So the, the, the Turkish policy had been trying to find a political solution that would enable some level of control for those groups within Idlib without necessarily uh, having the Syrian government in, in alliance, of course, with Iran and Iranian-backed militias, as well as uh, with the Russians, to to launch a, an attack on Idlib that would result in another a wave of refugees towards Turkey. We're talking about three, th- 3 million people or so around in the surrounding areas, and an expected a refugee flow maybe of up to a million if that happens. And that's a major security concern for Turkey. So there's very realistic concerns in the sense that what are we going to do if these people started to you know, walk towards towards our border on the one hand? And the second one is, of course, now that Turkey have uh, observation posts there um, in order to sort of uh, cement the influence in the region, Turkey is also worried about a possible attack on, on its forces. Uh, recently, Erdogan talked with Putin and afterwards uh, Akar, the, the the defense minister, spoke with Shoigu, and apparently the the topic of the discussion was basically complaining to the Russians that the Syrian uh, government 
bombings and, and strikes against the Turkish posts there is a provocation against Turkish-Russian relations. So basically trying to sort of convince the Russians not to carry out the, the operation. I'm not sure it will be successful, but it looks more and more sort of desperate in the sense that Turkey tries to prevent an operation happening over there for both very you know national security reasons, how to deal with the with the refugee flows, but also in terms of hoping that that will be the last sort of point in which Turkey might have some level of leverage in what is going on in Syria uh, with the groups uh, in and around Idlib. So mm-hmm. uh, it looks like uh, the, the the Russians would be looking for further leverage and see whether it was it's worth for them to delay on Idlib uh, in return for further concessions and or further alignment with Russia on the part of Turkey or not. So Turkey is, is in a sense, stuck in a, in a hard and a rock place. Right. So this is a fascinating proposition because on one side, you're describing this inherent contest of interests between Turkey and Russia. These are two, two men who are ostensibly strong men who pursue revanchist visions of yeah. Ottomanic and, and Russian history. And while they are clearly at odds in the context of Idlib, as you've so eloquently described, there seems to be a collaboration between them when it comes to military hardware. And in this, I'm curious to get your views about how the Turkish role in participating in the Western Alliance's F-35 procurement process stands apart from Turkey's recent announcement of acquiring a very sophisticated Russian missile defense technology, the S-400 system, which could challenge NATO capacity certainly has the, the, the potential to challenge NATO capacity. Describe to me how they seem to be comfortable collaborating on hardware when they have such you know, directly competing interests playing out right in Turkey's backyard. I think there are two things to, to, to mention here. One, if we just think about the military, the military rationale, uh, technical rationale behind choosing these different systems, the, the choice of Turkey to go for S-400s would not make sense at all. I mean, if you just look at from the perspective uh, of of technical aspects, it's just uh, it, what would you do with S-400s as an anti-ballistic missile as well as anti-aircraft defense without hooking them up to early warning systems uh, that relates with the, both the land-based and satellite-based radars and, and not hooking it up to, which would not be possible to hook it up to the NATO systems as well. So what is the use? The technical component is not is not really there. And Patriots are uh, technically a better and better tested for that matter. And the, the Patriot missile battery system you're describing. Yes, yes, exactly. Patriot, Patriots are battle-tested and better in terms of anti-ballistic missile threats, which is the primary threat to Turkey uh, emanating from the region. I mean, uh, Turkish Air Force is much stronger than the ones in the region, both Iran and Syria, as well as, you know, if you think about the West, Western part with the, with the Greece, the threat to Turkey is the ballistic missile. So if you just look at uh, from a technical perspective, it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if you look at it from a political perspective at least from the eyes of, of the Erdogan government. Now, it has two components, I would argue. One is that this can be seen as, as what, what some would call uh, a procurement uh, diplomacy, in the sense that it's very similar to some of the Gulf uh, countries are doing. You're basically buying off things that you don't necessarily can use or need to use, but use that as, as a way of, of getting favors from another, uh, another country. Would you say it's like an expression of diplomatic affection? It's a way of showing 
a, a deeper bilateral relationship. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you know, you, you you're giving this two point five billion dollars uh, not necessarily because they are the best systems or would be able to sort of hooked up to for your national defense, but you know to show that we want to develop or at least don't you know sort of block us in, in things that we care about. Here you go, we want to buy these systems from you. So that's that's one one component of it. The other one is for a while a lot of analysts would think that the choice of S four hundreds by the Turkish government was a form of a brinkmanship against the West, basically saying that if you do not take into account our interests within Syria, we would move towards Russians and we would even buy their their systems instead of either the sort of the Patriots or or the European versions. This was done back even before uh, with the Chinese systems initially when Turkey uh, sort of have this this contract out for anti-ballistic missile systems. The initial contract was granted to, to, to Chinese. And when people were talking about it, it was clear that that's not going to be, uh, it's going to really be cleared out. And that was canceled later on. But it was used as, as leverage against um, against other competitors. Now, some would argue that S-400s play the same role. And they're supposed to be delivered on July of this year. Whether that would happen or not is, uh, I think, up for debate. Um, but... On, on, on one hand, apart from the, uh, the procurement diplomacy, this is also the sort of the whole deal, with seeing it as, as a leverage against uh, against the West, particularly the United States, to push uh, the U.S. away from uh, YPG, PYD, uh, in which Turkey sees as an extension of PKK, which is uh, which is a terrorist organization recognized by Turkey as well as as the U.S. This is a means for Americans to be pushed away from their partnership with the Kurds. Exactly. Um, okay. So that's the second one. And the third, I would say, is that at least uh, for some uh, within the uh, Turkish administration, this the, the purpose of F-35s and, and S-400s would serve different purposes. Um, the, the, the strength of S-400s, if you look at them uh, as, as, as weapon systems, uh, is they are not necessarily as good as, as Patriots for anti-ballistic missiles, but they serve better as anti anti aircraft uh, uh, defense systems, so they could be used against um, aircraft uh, anti aircraft. Uh, whether that is what Turkish national security requires is a different story. Um, F thirty five is on the other hand both economically very viable, despite the fact that I mean the Turkish uh, defense industry would be getting quite a bit in terms of being part of that that whole process. So we we are actually on the positive side, if you look at it, Turkey is on the positive side when they, they purchase F-35s. I think the cost is about $6 billion for, for Turkey, but the expected economic benefit is, is roughly around $10 billion for the, for the defense industry. So that is definitely within the national interest. F-35s. As 400s, it's, it's, it might be much more limited for their use. How do they square this? The, the technical benefits, the economic benefits of participating with Western security, whether it's the F-35 system or the Patriots missile defense system, versus the political expression that Erdogan is trying to bestow upon his friend Vladimir Putin. Why would they be pursuing this relationship with Russia on the S-400 system while angering the U.S. Trump administration? I mean, I think there are two components to that. One is that there is a real sort of sense of frustration within Turkish governing circles 
about the Turkish American Turkish American relations regarding the Kurds and, and, and Syria. So this is this is one way of sort of punishing and or or showing this uh, you know discontent discontent with this. The second component I would argue is is, is that Erdogan himself does not necessarily like to be pushed around too much. And on the one hand, what you very rightly put forward, it is in Turkish uh, national interest to continue to be part of this uh, Western uh, procurement and defense system. And, and the concerns within NATO, not only the United States, but for the rest of NATO, having Russian technicians coming around, snooping around, uh, you know, NATO hardware and systems while trying to set up these things. These are not like you press a button and, and, and they fly. They need to be, people need to be trained and you will have Russian experts there. And that, of course, is a, is a serious security threat. And it does not necessarily square well with how this can be done when it is very clearly against Turkish national interest. Uh, but I think there is a different conception within the uh, Turkish government in the sense that Erdogan's primary concern seems to be the regime security and that uh, he believes that developing better political relations with Putin seems to be a, a safer way to to strengthen his domestic uh, domestic power. So whether that is in line with the national security is a different story. Okay, so then let's take a step back and add a new actor to this conversation. Uh, and in this, I mean Russia's ally in Syria, mm-hmm. Iran. Uh, we're now in a moment in which we're seeing, you know, asymmetric Iranian propagation yep. in the Persian Gulf uh, against Saudi tankers in Emirati waters. We are in a globally heated conversation about the JCPOA, the nuclear deal being put on the line with American withdrawal and the Iranians being clearly upset about it. We've seen the U.S. administration levy steel tariffs, uh, steel sanctions on Iran and continue to apply its policy of maximum pressure. What does the impact of this diplomacy surrounding Iran do to Turkey's relationship with Russia when it comes to Syria or even how it considers its role in the Western alliance? I think first it will put a lot of stress on Turkey's relations with the U.S., partly because now the exemptions for purchasing Iranian oil is going to be phased out. And Turkey is one of those countries that, that was benefiting uh, from this exemption. And, and Turkish trade with Iran has gone through the roof in the past couple of years. So that would be a significant economic concern when that ends, and that would put a lot of more pressure on Turkish-American relations. It would also make uh, Turkey more sort of reliant on Russia if the, it became much more obvious that Turkey's uh, sort of preferences or choices with regards how to deal with Iran would not align uh, with with the United States. And again, but it it, it puts Turkey in a, in an awkward position. Uh, on the one hand, you're trading with the with Iran and 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 providing you know ways in which to to for Iran to avoid or evade sanctions. But on the other hand, they are clearly on the opposing sides in in Syria. So that's one of the reasons why I I said in the very beginning that in the long term, Turkey's interests do not align with Iran or or Russia uh, in Syria or in the Middle East. But it, it, it is a sort of a, a forced modus vivendi that is, that is happening right now. Uh, it would create further problems. Though. Let me just put one more word in the sense that I, I you know, everybody's focused very much on 
uh, on the nuclear deal, and I think it's important in terms of non-proliferation uh, regime and, and whatnot, but trying to sort of deal with that in isolation is highly problematic. The primary threat, I would say, to the stability in the Middle East does not necessarily come from, from an Iranian nuclear program, but it would come, it comes from Iran's other activities in the region, from its sponsorship of terrorism, uh, from its militias all around, to the various other activities. And all this sanctions relief and the deal provided the necessary cash and the resources to the Iranian regime to be able to pursue these policies without having concessions and or change of Iranian behavior in this broader sense just getting a deal on, on a technical issue, on one political issue, that is the nuclear proliferation, would not necessarily solve the problem. And this obsession in that sense of one specific component and try to deal with that in an isolated sense, I think is highly mistaken. And that, I think that's what the Europeans are, are mostly falling into this trap of, of trying to isolate this nuclear issue uh, without sort of taking into account the broader implications of what Iranian policies in the region means. And that is, I think, a big, a big mistake. Do you think that Iran's latest ultimatum to Europe on the JCPOA will ultimately draw European leaders closer to Iran, or will it push European leaders closer to the American position on maximum pressure? I think it will push, uh, you know, they might be kicking and screaming, but they will probably move towards the United States. I mean, the numbers uh, just just are quite clear they cannot risk and or sort of endanger their particular relationship economic and otherwise with the United States for whatever the economic opportunities the deal provides for European firms in Iran and they would try to desperately try to find a way to sort it out and would probably try to pressure and and the, the Americans to come to table and I think that is also one way that the the US government wants to come to the table but my sense is, is that they would want to achieve broader settlement rather than just solely uh, isolated settlement within dealing with only with the nuclear program, because I think that's not the real issue. Uh, the real issue is Iran's other activities in the region and how that contributes to the to instability from Syria to Iraq to, to Lebanon and to the Gulf. That is the primary issue. And I think without dealing with that, if you just try to isolate the, the nuclear issue, that would not, that would not work. So we are speaking really about some really interesting habits here. We're speaking about in regimes in both Iran and in Turkey, how the regimes prioritize their own political dogmas ahead of their, their national interests in very clear terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they have done such a good job at controlling all aspects of their state apparatus, it seems to be that this pursuit of you know the primacy of their ideology supersedes the need and responsibility they have to actually advance their national interests in the concert of, of the community of nations. Yes. So let's take a quick look, if you will, Balkan, at the kind of position that Erdogan has been revealing to the world in the span of a decade or so of him being in power now. At the beginning of our conversation, you had described how his position in Syria was to try and find a way to have a a Muslim brother or political Islamist regime secured in Syria as a potential partner of Turkey's. We saw during the period of the Arab awakenings, the so-called Arab Spring in Egypt, that Turkey was very bullish, Erdogan particularly, uh, at assuring the role of the Muslim brothers in Cairo. When you look at how Erdogan is attempting to cast his leadership and assert his stamp of statesmanship in this contemporary era, 
What do you see him doing in advancing political Islam in the region? I think at this stage in 2019, that, that is kind of out, of out of the picture in the sense that Erdogan is trying to consolidate and, and, and protect uh, his own position in Turkey. But now if you look at further back, if you start looking at from 2011 to 2015, 2016, the, 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 I would say together with Ahmed Davutoglu, the first prime minister, uh, foreign minister and then the prime minister um, mm-hmm. uh, of Turkey at the time, their, mm-hmm. the purpose was, in a way, to create a sort of a, a line and access of uh, political Islamist parties across the region that ranges from Turkey to Syria to Egypt and, and the rest of North Africa. And that was sort of the idea. And, and, and in close relations with Hamas in Gaza was part of that. So that, that was sort of the, the political project uh, that would enable them to sort of project power and, and amplify their sort of regional dreams in one way. And, and Turkey playing sort of, a, as, as Davutoglu would put it, a, a rule maker, not a rule taker. Uh, in the region, um, and that was sort of his his idea, right. uh, but that that faced uh, political realities uh, on the ground when all these um, uh, Arab springs turned into Arab winters, one form of another, and then the, it became much more clear that the political Islam is is not going to be the the solution for the problems of these these countries, uh, including which I think was very clear with with the Morsi when he came to power and his his policies, but overall. And after 2016, when what you saw in the region was a retreat of, uh, of, of political Islamist groups and parties, and, and that sort of dream of, of creating this belt across uh, the Levant and, and to North Africa of uh, you know, ideologically aligned regimes uh, failed. And Erdogan, uh, in that sense, started to, especially after the attempted military coup in Turkey, uh, was much more concerned with his own uh, regime uh, and his own sort of political position, rather than trying to project power uh, in the region. And that's, I think, one of the primary reasons that he's, in a way, forced to find a modus vivendi with, with Russia and Iran, because this this policy has, has failed. The, the developments of Arab Spring and afterwards, I think, should disabuse anyone who still think that somehow uh, political Islam uh, could be part of the solution in the region. Fascinating. Balkan, you've been very generous with your time uh, and you've given us such a wonderful survey of the outlook of this troubled Western partner in Turkey, uh, its regime, its relations with belligerent regimes like those in in Russia and in Iran, and the impact it is having on the wider Western alliance, whether it be the United States or Europe. My final question is is focused on Canada, and that is, when you look at this troubled region, should Canadian policymakers start questioning whether Russia belongs in NATO in the long term, or is it time to start asking more harder questions about suspending Turkey from NATO? as a result of the choices that Erdogan has been making that, that drift further away from the Western interests uh, rather than fall uh, more in line with Western interests and indeed Turkish interests? Well, first, I, I would say that there are no real sort of uh, institutional mechanism to do that. Within NATO, I don't think there is a mechanism of, of actually leaving the alliance and or suspending or basically asking a, a, an ally to, to leave. But what I would argue is that uh, unless there is a way to sort of bridge this uh, growing gap between NATO allies and Turkey regarding 
what is the proper way to deal particularly with Russia, it would make uh, NATO a lot less effective alliance. And that is a threat to all NATO members. And, and the way to sort of give this message to the Turkish government that those policies are harming and in the long term would continue to harm Turkish national interests, as well as its NATO allies, is I think is paramount importance. And Canada could play a role, uh, a significant role in the sense of, of delivering this particular message. And that by acting in, in, in certain ways, Turkey is putting its, its own national security at danger uh, as well. Fascinating point to conclude this amazing conversation, my friend. Thank you for logging in with us and for spending time with our listeners and Pod Bless Canada. And like I had mentioned earlier, I'm looking forward to this being the inaugural session we have of many to come. So Balkan Devlin, thank you for your time. Uh, and with that, listeners, I'll, I'll sign off for now and suggest that you tune in later. Thank you very much. Have a great day.